Welcome to the Spy Cops Info Podcast. Looking at the secret political police deployed undercover into the lives of activist groups. Hashtag Spy Cops Pod. Episode 22. Tilly Gifford. Part 4 of a mini-series on informers, grasses and infiltrators. I'm interviewing Tilly Gifford, formerly of... Tilly, I don't know. Do you want to introduce yourself at all? Uh, hiya. Yeah, my name's Tilly. Um, I've been based in Scotland for a long time. Uh, I was targeted by undercover police in 2009 in Scotland, which is what brings me to this podcast space here. Okay, Dave. Thanks for that. Yeah, so Tilly, yeah, thanks again for speaking for, to us today. Um, yeah, so I... I mean, going back to, to 2009, can you just really just, just give us the background and des- describe your experience as best you can remember from, what is it now, 12 mm. years ago? 2009, I was targeted by the undercover police in Scotland, um, and that in, se- in itself was quite a big um, event, an episode of a lot of learning. Um, but what was noteworthy is that was a year before, like the first of the... Spy Cops was uncovered in 2010, which was Mark Kennedy, Mark Stone. Um, mm-hmm. So the cultural landscape around those things was really different as well, just to state that. Um, and also uh, that event led to me being eligible to push for an inquiry to happen in Scotland because at the moment in Scotland, there is no inquiry at all into undercover policing. Like the inquiry stops at the border. It's just for England and Wales. So that incident in 2009. But what, what campaigning were you involved with in, around 2009? So in 2009, I'd been involved with quite a few years with um, environmental uh, campaigns. One of them was a group called Plain Stupid, which was taking direct action um, against the aviation industry for its contributions to climate change. Um, and in 2009, we had very safely and responsibly shut down Aberdeen Airport. It was a fully accountable action. And about maybe two months after that, I was targeted by the undercover police. Or maybe at least that's when we came to know. Maybe we'd been, all been followed for longer. We, all, we don't know that. But that's when it came to light, at least, that I was being targeted by the undercover police. And, yeah, and to date we still don't know who these people were, like which department they worked for, who deployed them, why, if they were Scottish police, if they weren't. We still know nothing to date about who these men were. Um, About two months after we had done that action in Aberdeen Airport, I got arrested for being in a derelict building in Glasgow with some friends. Um, yeah, we, it was completely harmless, a derelict factory. And they found us leaving it and they were like, okay, okay, it's quite clear that you guys are just looking around a derelict, back, derelict building. It should be fine. We're just going to check your names and then, yeah, you'll be free to go. It shouldn't be a problem. And then they checked my name and they're like, actually, no, we're going to arrest you. And they arrested me with housebreaking with intention to theft which is crazy. It was literally a building with like no doors and no walls, <laughs> you know? 
Um, and then they kept me in the sales for the whole weekend. I think we arrested on the Friday and I got out on the Monday. And in that time, I was interviewed quite a few times by different sections of the police, like multiple times interviewed. They really wanted to know about activism. They wanted to know about playing stupid. And the G20 was due in London not long afterwards. So it was a lot of questioning about all of this. Um, and then on the Monday when I was released, they give you, they confiscate all your possessions, right? And they put them in the Ziploc bag. Anyone who's been arrested will be very familiar with this. And, uh, when I was released on the Monday, there was a hole in the bag and my keys were gone. So that was like my house key, my work key, all my keys were gone. And I, I said, well, okay, like where are my keys? And they said, well, some other department came and took them. There's not much we can do about it. Goodbye. And so I had to leave. Sorry, just to stop. Yeah, it's bizarre. There's just a hole in the bag rather than just undoing the bag and putting another, setting another bag up, which seems weird. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, and also absolutely no explanation and accountability. You think their work would be made more simple by themselves if there's even a note saying this is where they are, this is why they're taken or something. You know, they, yeah. There was literally nothing. And they were like, I'm just really sorry, can't help you. No, they didn't say really sorry. They was like, can't help you on your way. Um, and then two days later, I got a phone call by someone being quite kind of, yeah, very much like, we really don't want to inconvenience you. Um, we'd love to meet you and have coffee and give you back your keys, of course. We'd like to do it at a place that's convenient for you and a time that's convenient for you, which seemed quite crazy seeing in the, it's a massive inconvenience and really spooky as well to be detained for three days and then spend multiple days without your keys and you don't know what they've had access to in that time with your keys as well and you don't even know who's taken them like it's pretty rich to be talking about inconvenience and we arranged to meet the next day at a police station near me in Glasgow mm -hmm. and what is Interesting and noteworthy is that they had approached someone else from our group, from the same group from Plain Stupid, um, the same affinity group. And this was someone who's older from, than me, who was also from a working class background. They had approached him with probably the similar intentions and he, he was like, <laughs> yeah, really spooked by it and scared and really did not want to engage at all. Um, yeah, and so we knew that they were probably going to do something similar to me, that they were going to ask for information and for an arrangement. Yeah, so this was before the the days of um, smartphones, really. So I went to a friend and asked for a recording device. Yeah, I mean, there's a few other things that, they, that came up when they, they, they met you to attempt to recruit you as a as an informant and they seem to indicate that that you know that lots of people were doing it already etc etc now one of the things I, I know you've been really busy the last year or so uh tilly but so i don't know how closely you've been able to follow the many proceedings of the undercover policing inquiry and the thousands of documents but one of the things that's come up was mi5's involvement in the in the special demonstration squads um operations now there's a probably a few dozen yeah. documents who are basically M, they're basically mi5's notes of their meetings with um normally the, the senior officers from the special demonstration squad and what they say in those meetings often is basically where the special demonstration squad the sds can't put infiltrators in my5 will attempt to recruit civilian informers they actually call them it's a bit confusing because in mi5 speak when they say agents they actually mean grasses rather than paid employees of 
MI5 actually means someone who's a civilian who f somehow they managed to recruit. So it's interesting that I, I, I suppose them telling you this that oh, loads of people are doing it as, as some kind of weird way of saying oh, it's okay for you to do it as well. There was kind of do you think that was the case rather than them giving you vital information about their their supposed network of informants? Yeah, absolutely. They're definitely trying to make it sound like it was something really banal, that they've got informers and it's routine, that they have these arrangements with everyone in all kinds of different groups. Um, I guess they're really trying to downplay that it's a massive thing, right, to betray <laughs> your uh, community and beliefs and values, right? It's a huge thing. It is, um, it is. A really, really offensive and disgusting thing to ask of someone or to put pressure on someone to do and they're absolutely downplaying to be like no 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 like everyone like we've got people everywhere and it's yeah it's not a big thing um yeah and I guess also to because a big point they were saying that it would they would keep me safe and that they would give me cash that was not quit that was not traceable so I never had to explain myself they would always meet uh somewhere far away from um any like urban environments I'd be in you know a lot of it was trying to convince me by making sound making it sound like they'd be very considerate of uh me being um like untraceable and that I wouldn't be found out by the by the groups I was working with so I guess that was part of it right it's like we know how to do this we know how to keep people safe like yeah many people informing on us uh informing uh, many people are giving us information yeah, but what I think is really interesting is as well, you know, I at that time was my early 20s and yeah, from a middle class background, I was like at university then and yeah, I had the capacity to make the move to, to record them while someone else who's older than me from working class background, it was a really, really terrifying and impossible thing. And I think just it's really good as well to let's speak about the different context social context which might allow someone to do this and the massive pressure that people face depending on demographics and that could be about I'm also a white person so if I was a person of color I might not be able to do that if I was from a working class background I might not have been able to do that if I was even older and just had more more skeletons in the cupboard that they could have used against me I wouldn't have been able to do that so it's also yeah I think it's really important to say that there's a lot of um power and boldness in youth and kind of as well being quite oblivious and ignorant about what the police are actually doing again you know this is before the spy cops were uncovered um and also yeah that it takes a certain context like socially and to do class and privilege to allow this to happen as well there was a, a case in south wales in swansea where the police tried to recruit a, a black lives matter um, campaigner Lowry Davies or Lowry, I'm not sure. Lowry, I think it is. Um, and and, and they done it in a more, even more insidious mm. way. What they tried to say to her was they weren't going to try a re recruit her to grass on her own friends, but in fact, they only wanted to speak to her to um, get any information from her about um, fascist protesters that might turn up at the demos, which is as uh, so, uh, she obviously clearly realized at the time um she obviously she obviously saw that straight through that ruse um yeah so obviously still going on um despite obviously the spy cops scandal etc 
Yeah, just when I saw the the case in Wales and it was just so starkly similar to what I went through now 12 years ago. And I guess, um, yeah, even if changes are going to be implemented or there are going to be safeguards in place or there is going to be more awareness, like the cops should know now that they shouldn't be getting away with this stuff and that the media and the general public react to it. Like, I think it also shows that change is going to take a really long time because it's inherent to these institutions to use his tactics and expect this kind of betrayal and cooperation. Yeah, I mean, with the undercover policing inquiry, actual civilian informants aren't actually under investigation. And we did wonder that after the, if you like, the spy caps scandal broke, that in fact the police might try and use more informants because mm. the tactic of that sort of deep infiltration tactic, we would, you know, we guessed was was suspended from late 2010, 2011 yeah. onwards. Um, but, I mean, yeah, obviously one of the things, as you were talking about, the sort of like the circumstances of which you are are in, so often, as we know from espionage, often the people who are informers aren't doing it necessarily for money. They're doing it because there's some kind of embarrassment that the whoever's trying to get them to provide information has on them like obviously in the past it would have been connected with your sexuality or something but obviously you know or your perhaps some problem with your finances and I think from what I've I've spoken to journalists back in from talking about cases one case of a of a lawyer he was seemingly blackmailed into providing um, information on on justice campaigns this is I think back in the yeah maybe end of the 70s, early 80s, on behalf of MI5, as I, as I understand it. Um, so that, that kind of stuff's been going on for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And in my case, it was definitely a mixture of financial incentive and also um, very much pushing the fact that I was likely to get myself into trouble and would cripple my future in terms of career or credibility because I was involved in direct action and criminal activities and also really and again just really patronizing and misogynistic like very much hinting that I was being manipulated by other people in my group who weren't committed to the same values as me and were planning things which were m- much more violent or hardcore and things that I wouldn't adhere to um yeah really undermining um seeking to undermine my yeah faith in people in my affinity groups right um yeah, it was, it was those combination of things. I mean, we spoke for quite a lot. I met them, I think, four times over a month. And quite often we met for like an hour or an hour and a half. It's quite a lot of material there. Um, and actually some of the most... Some of the most... Um, like edgy parts of that whole story weren't recorded and weren't put in the media because I didn't have recordings of them and it was already strong enough what we had. And in some ways, again, you know, it's before this kind of cultural shift of the scandal of spy cops... It was the things happened. It, the journalists were like, you know, they they were there when it happened, but they're like, we can't really use this because people might not believe it. There's no recording, um, and that was that was stuff like um, at that point we had um, our lawyers were trying to find out who these people were, who these two men were, who were contacting various ones of us, and who'd you know contacted me, and they had called Strathclyde Police 
number of times like as lawyers as people know their way through the system and Shrakai police were like you know stop calling us there's no one to these names on our databases like leave us alone and um yeah later at the very end I had said that I would meet them and I decided to go there with my lawyer at this point it actually started getting quite scary because um it was only at the end really we started realizing the kind of yeah, how dark this could potentially be, that we really didn't know who these guys were and what department it was. If it was MI5, if it was the private security company with the police outsourcing their dirty work, like all of these are completely possible hypotheses. You know, we still don't know. Um, and also that the police do do things like they can plant drugs on you, they can do all kinds of things. And we'd also found out a bit more about the actual, like, um, on a legal basis, it felt it was apparently it turned out it was really important to not actually take anything they gave me. So we talked about money, etc. But it would become contractually different if I actually took anything of theirs. So we we had a bit more awareness, and at the end, we had all the material we needed, and I wanted to draw it to a close, and I was getting quite scared. And that's it. That they had called me, and they said, um, "You know, your friends are calling and impersonating lawyers, and they need to stop. Like, you need to stop messing with us." And like the tone had changed, it was much more threatening. And then I said I'd meet them one last time and I decided to do that with a lawyer there so that there was a witness who could be, who could say, you know, could clearly say, you know, this person wants to terminate communication, they want to terminate the arrangement. Because if not, it was like, how do you, you know, how do you stop this thing? How do you stop them contacting you? They call you from hidden numbers or they call you just from, um, it's actually a BT number a lot of the time, they call me from like a landline. Yeah, and so it started to feel quite scary and out of control. And also we had all the material we needed. Um, and so I said, okay, I'll meet you at this point. And I had the, my lawyer there as a witness. And it was, it was always, it was always um, like meeting points on, on like the street. And then they'd always pick me up and put me in the car and take me somewhere else. And then we'd have the conversations. And so I was there as a lawyer and we waited and we waited and we waited. And then it was like 45 minutes passed. And I was like, okay, clearly like, from the tone of our communications, they've just decided to call it a day and that's that, so that's fine. And so I walked the lawyer back to his car. This was like noon in the middle of Glasgow City Centre. And I walked into his car and said, bye. And then I walked away to go back home and it was like, okay, like job done, it's all finished, it's fine. And then as soon as I started walking away, like one of them was right behind me and the other one was driving alongside at like walking pace. It was really, really scary. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah the total creeps and clearly they had been watching the whole time but just didn't want to come whilst there was a, a witness there um, and yeah the one walking behind me said we're really disappointed mutually you're very disappointed you shouldn't have done that and they said yeah you're right we are very interested in playing stupid and if it's not us doing it it'll be someone else anyway and then they threatened something about prison but this guy he also had like an envelope at the same time it was really it was so classic it's like the cheesy the cheesy like scene from the film was one got this dodgy brown envelope yeah well it sounds cheesy but also scary at the same time it was really scary by that point yeah up until then we kind of thought it was really exciting and fun as well as well as being scary and then it was just straightforwardly scary and yeah and just someone driving the car alongside you walking speed and someone else is like pretty much got a hand on your shoulder it's spooky and by this point you know all there wasn't any recording equipment because I just weren't expecting them then like I'd switched it all off you know um 
so there's no recording of these kind of instances so it wasn't put in the media story um yeah and again just bearing in mind you know the context changed so much the year later um yeah so this is what happened in 2010 and then we did you know all the paperwork did freedom of information and all these kind of things to try and work out try and get some information some clues as to who they were who commissioned them yeah and were they private security in which case why did they have access to a police station which is where i first met them why were they using a landline that wasn't connected to anywhere why does Strathclyde police tell us to tell us consistently that they wanted any of their databases you know so many unanswered questions so yeah so tilly thanks very much for all your time and um yeah hopefully we'll speak we'll speak again soon Look out for more episodes on Infiltrators, Informers and Grasses coming fairly soon. In the meantime, check out spycops.info and give us a review, share, like or even donate some money. Cheers.